And so we, we've been talking about those things. We've been talking about the mind, but we also have been uh, talking about a book called, by David D. Burns called Feeling Great. And we know in the transformational process, but also in relationships, especially with God, our emotions are important. And they're good. But as my dad was talking about, they can kind of take you to and fro, left and right, up and down, all around. And we all can agree that our emotions are influential, right? How hard is it to do something you just don't want to do, right? How hard it is to love someone when you just don't like them, right? We know how important these emotions are. So we looked at this book, and we've been looking at this, and one of the really, really important things I want you to grasp is that for David D. Burns, he shows us that our emotions follow our thinking. Change the way you think, change the way you feel. Your emotions are very dependent on how you're thinking, right? And I added to it, I would say not just thinking, but your beliefs. What do you really believe? And your emotions can be really good signals to you that, oh, I maybe don't actually believe this thing as much as I think I believe this thing, right? right? It's one thing to know intellectually, God loves me. It's another thing to feel loved, right, by God, and for it to guide you and transform you and lead you, all right? Now, I want to make two important notes that I don't think I've made very clear, but I really want to make those to make sure we're, we're together in the same page. Um, it is a good thing for us to feel sad or anxious if we are sinning. Um, so I hope you haven't come away from this as, oh, how I'm going to use these tools to you know, continue to sin but not feel as bad after sinning. Um, no, that's, that's, that's a terrible thing. Uh, if you feel guilt after sinning, that's a really good thing. That means you're on it. You haven't become like Ephesians, where they become desensitized to the corruption that they've been involved in, right? It's not a good thing to not feel bad after doing something wrong, right? So there are periods in our, time, periods in our lives where it's a good thing to feel sad. If, you, if you've lost someone, or, or uh, you know, what is it? Uh, uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? It's a good thing. It's your body. It's kind of your physiological way of your body dealing with that. So sadness can actually be a very good thing. So I don't want you to come away with this and, and try to implement these tools when really you should be sad. It's a good thing. It's your body coping with this. It's your body processing this, um, especially with a lost loved one and things like that, okay? So there are periods of time in which sadness and anxiousness uh, are just, they're part of life and they're really not bad, all right? Uh, so I want to make that clear. Another one and another example of this, uh, let's say you're a really strong, caring person. You're going to feel sad. Your strength of being a caring person inevitably will, will come to, you're going to feel weightiness. You're going to feel sadness for people. I'm a pretty caring person. I feel sad for people. You know, me and uh, Trent had a conversation a long time ago. Uh, he's like, how do you know if you're high truth or high mercy? And I was like, well, look at your friends. They're not following Jesus. Are you mad or are you sad? If you're mad, you're probably high truth. If you're sad, you're probably high mercy. That's not like a tried and true rule. But you can tell that those kinds of personalities, those strengths that we have, tend to lend towards you're going to feel some sadness. You're going to feel a level of anxiousness if you care about doing well in something, right? If you want to do well on a test, you're probably going to have a little bit of, all right, I'm getting a little nervous, you know? 
you know, butterflies. Uh, I want to do well on this. You know, I feel this even to a degree coming up here doing a sermon. I want to do a good job. I want you guys to learn. I want the Lord to speak. So I feel a level of like, all right, got to be on it. But it's interesting because that's your body's way, literally physiologically, it's your body's way of focusing your mind. It's blocking out all the extra stuff. You don't need this right now. It's focusing your mind. So a level of anxiousness is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You need it. It focuses your mind. It's good for you. But what I love about David D. Burns and what I've really been trying to do with this whole sermon is to show us that while a level of sadness here and a level of anxiousness here is not a bad thing, we tend to, with our thinking, blow it out of proportion. We make it far worse. If we put it on a scale, if it's good to feel, you know, 15% anxious when you're going into a test or a sporting event or whatever it may be, preaching a sermon, or, you know, you love one past, it's been some time, and you should probably be feeling, you know, 20 to 30% of grief, right, of sadness. What we do with our thinking is, man, we'll, we'll hit it to 100, right? We'll take it to 100. We'll take it to 100. And then we're feeling terrible, and then we're miserable, and then we're just going panicking, and we're going through all these different things. And what David D. Burns is like, hey, no, let's identify your thinking. Let's look at your thinking. Where is it disconnected from reality? Where are we getting off? Where does the evidence not support this thinking? Where has your past experiences really kind of clouded your judgment in this area? Where have you made this worse? And let's get it back down to a normal healthy level. Does that make sense? All right? So that's what we've been getting at. So the last weeks we've gone through, let's see, six cognitive distortions, which is a fancy way of saying these are just bad ways of thinking, right? These are just bad ways to interpret reality, because reality is really not like this. And again, these are just ways that we just fall into inevitably, again and again. And you really have to watch yourself. But if we can identify this, and we can identify it, especially in our relationships with each other, and definitely with our relationship with God, if we can identify this, then I think we can go from being miserable Christians to actually joy-filled Christians, joying the Lord, and only experiencing those bouts of sadness or anxiety that really are good and in that good measure for good reason, and not making it far worse on ourselves. Let's be honest this morning. When you're feeling miserable in your relationship with God, when you're frustrated, when you're discouraged, when you're in despair, when you are just angry, when you are feeling uncared for, unloved, how does that affect your relationship with God? How does it affect your motivation to read God's Word? To be here on Sunday, to be at small groups, to pray. It affects, does it not? It affects us all, right? And so that's been my thinking all along is, well, let's identify these things. Let's identify these areas. And hopefully we can start being joined in the Lord because we have every reason to be joyful in the Lord, right? Amen? We got every reason. As my dad said, reality. We believe God is real. That is our reality. So let's not forget that reality when situations arise. All right? So let's jump right in. Our first cognitive distortion or just bad way of thinking all right? The first one is called magnification and minimization. All right? You exaggerate the negativity in a situation and minimize the positives. It's like looking through a pair of binoculars. 
all right? It's like looking through a pair of binoculars. You blow things way out of proportion, or you shrink them way down out of proportion, right? You can go both ways. You can magnify, make something bigger than it should be, or you can make something smaller than it should be. Both can lead to not good places. All right, so here's an example. Here's a negative thought that we can have. God doesn't give me what I want when I want it. I conclude God is not listening. He's impersonal. He's uncaring. He's possibly not even real. All right, now this is an extreme example. But golly, I know in my life this isn't far from the truth by any means. And so I focus on this negative. God's not giving me what I want, and I'm mad. And this is a negative thing, right? And as I talked about, the first line, you exaggerate the negativity in the situation, and you minimize the positives. Look at the positive. You could get to grow in patience, in faith, and in perseverance. Those are a big three in the Christian faith and in the Bible, are they not? Patience, fruit of the Spirit. Faith, one of the big three for Paul. Faith, hope, and love, right? Perseverance, important qualities, characteristics of our faith in God and in our discipleship. And so we focus on the negativity. God's not giving me what I want, and I'm getting mad, and I'm getting worse, and I'm just it's spiraling out of control, when really God is just trying to grow you in something that is very good for you. Patience, faith, perseverance. Make sense? Again, another example. God feels distant. I conclude God is uncaring. He's cold. He doesn't speak. He's distant, right? You can just spiral down. But the positive thing could be that God is pulling back for you to exercise some faith muscles. He's inviting you to come. Follow me. Are you going to follow me? Are you going to keep coming towards me? Or are you just going to sit on the beach and, and just not go anywhere? Right? There's some positives in these types of things. So if our thinking just spirals out of control and just keeps going, we can miss out on the positives that God has in store for us. Another example, another example of this magnification minimization comes to how we view God, comes to what we believe about God, his characteristics. I want to show you this. Uh, a big thing, God is just. There are so many verses in the Bible that say God is just. That is a quality of God, a characteristic, an attribute of God. He is just. Now, there is always a temptation, though. God is also love. But there is such a huge temptation to be so focused on God is love that now you do not see God is just. Who here thinks that God is love and God is just contradict each other? Contrast. How do they mix together? Right? It could be easy to do that. It can be very easy. And so the Old Testament is like, a, ooh, I have to explain the Old Testament to a non-Christian. Let's stick in the New Testament. You know, it's a lot nicer. Jesus, love, all that types of stuff. We're, we're there, you know, it's hard to reconcile sometimes the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hold up. Hold up. Look at this example. Man, I was thinking about this, and I've been floored by this example. I was going to use John, but John's not here. I don't see him, and so I'm going to use Brent now. Let's say that Brad and Brent, right, two great guys, 
let's say Brad's going through something, all right? And he's just angry at Brent. He hates his, you know, taste in football teams. I don't know, you know, just can't stand it, right? And this is an extreme situation, but let's say that Brad kills Brent. I know, I know, we're getting extreme. It'll drive home the point, though, all right? So let's say Brad kills Brent. Okay, where's the justice? All right, where's the justice for Brent? He's dead. He was murdered by Brad. Where's the justice? Where's the justice for Jill? She just lost her husband. Where's the justice for Matt? He just lost a father. Where's the justice? Well, the justice and the accountability has to go on Brad. Brad did it. He murdered him. It's on Brad. Now, let's think about this, though. Let's say Brad was maybe, you know, maybe he went to church. Maybe he wasn't a Christian. Maybe he was a Christian. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was. But let's say he definitely, at a later point in his life, for sure came to salvation. True faith in Jesus. Real true faith in Jesus. Right? And he repented of that. And he found forgiveness in it. What happens to the justice? What happens to the accountability for that murder? Because now Brad doesn't have to experience that, right, in Christ. He does not have to experience the penalty for that murder. But where does it go? Does it just evaporate? Does it just, whoo, nothing? Well, wait a minute. Jill and Matt still need justice. How do they get that? You know where that goes? That penalty goes on to Jesus. That penalty goes on to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus says, I will take the penalty and the accountability and the justice for that action. I will take it on myself. Why? Because I love Brad, and I love Brent, and I love Jill, and I love Matthew. I will take it on myself. So that justice is satisfied while also in the most loving act, sacrificial death on other behalf. Do you see that if justice somehow is some contradiction or some hard-to-reconcile thing, you lose the depth of love, the depth of Christ's love for each and every one of us. There is so much to be said there and so little time, but there is definitely no less to say on that matter. So I hope we don't see love and put it up above justice, or any other attribute for that matter. I just use these two of God. But we see them as harmonious, working together, united, giving depth, giving beauty to God. All right? So don't minimize an attribute of God, like justice, which can be easy, or holiness of God. And don't maximize His others, which are very easy, His love, His grace, His forgiveness, His mercy, at the expense of His other ones. You must hold the whole thing in balance, all right? So your antidote to maximizing and minimizing, especially as it relates to our relationship with God, is you have to read the whole Bible. You have to read the whole thing. You have to hold the whole thing in all of its parts and all of its beauty and all of its difficulty. You have to hold it all together because if you start maximizing and minimizing, then what you come out with is a caricature of God. And nothing not true to him. And it gets us removed from reality, and it creates problems. Again, someone that's so like, God is love, God is love, God is love, and then this happens, can get really floored in their relationship with God because that does not 
go with, wait a minute, God's, God's all love. Wait a minute, uh, I'm floored. Well, you've got to hold the whole view of God in mind. And that can be difficult. But nonetheless, what we must do. Let's move on. Emotional reasoning is our next cognitive distortion. Reasoning from the way you feel. I feel like an idiot, so I must be one. Right? That's a simple way of saying emotional reasoning. Right? Here's some examples. I feel like God isn't there, therefore he must not be there. I feel like prayer doesn't work, therefore it must not work. I feel uncared for by God because of what has happened in my life, therefore God must not be personal. God must be impersonal or uncaring. You're reasoning from your emotions. Once again, David D. Burns feeling great. He's talked about this continually. Your emotions are dependent on your thinking to a significant degree. So looking at the emotions to give you truth is like a doctor looking at symptoms and just treating symptoms. Now, we want the doctor to go further than the symptoms. We want to find out the root cause. And again, if you're emotionally reasoning from your emotions, you're not getting at the root cause. The root cause is your thinking. What are you thinking about? What are you believing? All right? And again, as in so many of these cognitive distortions, these bad ways of thinking, they become self-fulfilling prophecies if you don't keep them in check. Right? Again, I feel like prayer doesn't work, therefore it must not work. If you feel that way and you really lean into that, I bet you you'll stop praying. And then prayer really won't work because you're not praying. As John Newton, wonderful man who wrote Amazing Grace said, if your prayer is not being answered as you're coming to the throne room of God in prayer, you think it's going to be answered if you don't go to the throne room in prayer? Very sarcastic. Love it. Again, I love that. Such a good reminder of us. Don't fall into these self-fulfilling prophecies. They, we can fall into any one of these. Any one of these. The antidote, again, read the whole Bible and allow it to speak and ask it, am I feeling, is what I'm feeling true according to God's Word? Right? If I'm feeling like God is distant, I go to God's Word and I said, what does God's Word say about it? God's Word says, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you always. Okay. Am I going to trust it? Do I believe it? Right? And again, if you're feeling that emotional like distance and stuff and you're struggling with that, then that could be a good telltale sign that maybe I don't believe that scripture as much as I think I do. Yeah, I can quote it, Matthew 28, 20. But maybe I don't really believe it. It can be a good signal to you. Allow God's word to speak to you and tell you, are these emotions good? Are they right? Or are they wrong? Again, the greatest example of this is 2 Kings 6, Elisha. Elisha, you have the army of Syria coming to fight Israel. All these chariots, all these warriors. Elisha's with this messenger of God, very interesting character. He prays that his eyes would be open to see what is actually there. And his eyes are opened and he sees the army of the Lord surrounding that army. I think that's an important and great illustration that, man, our feelings are like, no, this is real. This is what is actually happening. God is distant. God doesn't speak. Man, God's not real. Or this or that. This doesn't work. And it's so easy to get into that because our emotions are pushing us there. 
And if only your eyes could be open, and if only you could believe God's Word and trust in the reality of God's Word, you would see that it's distorted. It's distorted. It's not true. It's not true. So pray for it. Let's go to the next one. Should living. The next distortion is I live, I live with a bunch of shoulds. You find yourself doing things because you should do them rather than choosing to do them freely. There's so much to be said on this. I'll make two points. There are, are, there are undoubtedly, undoubtedly, shoulds in this life. All right? So don't get me wrong and don't mishear me that you should never not do any should. <laughs> All right? There are things you should do, right? You should respect gravity and not go jump off a building. All right? You should respect the law of our city and country, right? Because that's going to get you into trouble, right? You should do that. You should pray. You should spend time in God's Word, right? You should be here on Sunday mornings together in the body of Christ. Those are capital S shoulds. Those are good. They are intrinsically good things commanded by God, encouraged in His Word for us to do. So there are those things. But where we come to, and if we probably are honest, we experience this, I find myself reading the Bible mainly because I should do it as a Christian, right? I find myself loving other people mainly because I should love other people. I pray mainly because I should pray as a Christian. Essentially, I obey God's Word more out of duty rather than freely given love. I'm doing stuff because I should do them. Now, this isn't all bad. Not all bad. But here's the thing. Here's the main point I wanted to make. You have to graduate from the school of shoulds. You have to. As soon as possible. All right? Why? Because these things are good in and of themselves. And the longer you stay in this duty mentality, I'm a Christian, so this is what I do. The longer you stay in that, the more miserable you're going to be in your relationship with God. Right? You're just going to be miserable. You're doing it out of duty. There's no emotional intimacy or connection. It's just, this is what I am, so this is what I do. Right? It just doesn't last long. It doesn't, it doesn't cultivate uh, real intimacy and love, right? It's just, just me doing what I'm supposed to do, right? And I think we have to go through this. Undoubtedly, we have to go through this phase in our relationship with anybody. Kids, you have to go through this. Young youth, you have to go through this. It's good. You learn what's right and wrong by doing them just because I'm supposed to do them because mom and dad, that's good. But hopefully you graduate and around the college age is really the perfect time for this. You hopefully are seeing, well, hey, that was actually a good thing that my parents told me to do. I did it because they told me to do it. I didn't really want to do it. But that was actually a good thing. So then you start choosing out of your own free will to do it. And that's what we want to get to in our relationship with God, with reading the Bible, with prayer, with being here on Sunday mornings, with, with giving, right? We want to get out of this. Well, these are the tenets of the Christian faith and being a disciple, so... I'm going to, you know, robotically do this. We want to get away from that. We want to say, no, I trust God's word. This is good. 
This is good. And I may not know the full extent of its goodness for me and for the community and for the world, but I trust that it is good in and of itself. And I freely, by my own decision, freely choose to do these things, trusting the Lord out of love for the Lord. We've got to graduate to that. And you've got to get there as soon as possible. The longer you stay in the shoulds, boy, the more just life-sucking that school is going to be in your relationship with the Lord. When you get to the freely choosing, boy, I tell you what, man, that's when stuff grows. And that's when love grows, right? So I encourage you in that. Here we go, the 10th one, labeling. An extreme form of overgeneralization. That was the second one, if you remember back two weeks ago, in which you try to capture the essence of yourself or another person with a one-word label. Here's some examples. God's cruel, right? One word, he's cruel. Well, what did he do on the cross? That would, that would be something I would ask. He's cruel? What did he do on the cross? Is that cruel? God's silent, right? One word label, he's silent. What am I holding in my hand? Spoken, how many pages are in this? Over a thousand. All right, so I have a thousand one hundred pages of God speaking. Is he really silent? Right? Man, ladies and gentlemen, they're overgeneralizations. As we learned two weeks ago, overgeneralizations take a little thing and we apply it to the whole thing, right? And usually we apply it to the character and essence of a person, right? Their identity. Right? Instead of being specific and saying, in this particular situation, God is being silent with me, as we should do, what we do is we take it and we apply it to God. No, God just doesn't speak. No, he's just not speaking to you right now in this situ situation. Be specific. Don't overgeneralize. Again, with each other, right? We, want to, we can easily put it on ourselves, I'm a bad Christian, or they're a bad Christian. And again, no, be specific. What they did maybe was not good, okay? But don't apply it to their whole identity and put a label on them that says definitively bad. That doesn't make sense. That's not in reality as we learned, right? We're all, we're all different shades of gray, right? We're all doing, you guys, as I said, you all did something great this morning. You're here. That's a good thing. I bet you, you all did something not good this last week. All right, that's not bad. But you're not all bad, right? You got some good, you got some bad. We can get so focused on the bad, though, that we lose sight of the good and we lose sight of the whole picture of someone. Again, Jesus is the best at combating labels. And that's really the antidote. And if you could throw it up, because I did not put it up in my notes. Yeah, be specific. Oh, go back. Nope, oh, thank you. Allow Christ to label you. I love it. My dad read that scripture. You are no longer foreigners. Right? Label. Right? We use that label in our culture right now, right? Aliens. Aliens. Right? We do it. Right? Republican. Democrat. Right? Midwesterner. Right? We use labels all the time. Right? And Jesus is the best at just taking that cultural label, right? Even the beginning of Dad's passage, verse 11, he's like, you were known as the uncircumcised by the circumcised. Labels. Jesus is so good at taking those labels, flipping them on their head. How many times did he call those who are unclean in society clean? 
How has he taken us from sinners to now saints? The only person that has the power to label you is Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. So that doesn't mean you can label other people because you don't have that power. I think about the elephant and the seven blind men. It's a famous story of seven blind men that come to an elephant and they feel it. And one feels the side of the elephant and it's like, oh, it's like a wall. And one feels the leg and it's like, oh, it's like a tree trunk. And one feels the ear and it's like, oh, it's like a fan. And one feels the tail and it's like a snake, right? One feels the tusk and it's like a spear, right? Everybody has a certain perception. We have a certain view on things. We only can see so much on a particular situation. But what you need is someone that actually can see and that can actually see the whole thing for what it is, which is only Jesus because he knows everything and he sees it all as it actually is. So he's the only one that can definitively say, that's an elephant. Idiots. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? He's the only one that can actually definitively say what it is. He's the only one that can definitively say what you are. And if he's given you the label as a child of God, a son, a daughter of God, a saint, right? Then don't let anybody else tell you otherwise, and don't tell yourself otherwise. Okay? Amen. Labeling. Not about it. Not into it. Last one. Self-blame, other blame. You find fault in others or yourself instead of solving the problem or identifying the true causes of the problem. Now, there are definitely situations in which we can blame ourselves when we do not need to blame ourselves all the way, right? Obviously, there are, those are obvious situations in which we can, that is just not good. You don't have to blame yourself all the way. It is not all on you, and we can do that. But I think what I think, what I see in our relationship with God that can make us miserable or frustrated with God or discouraged is that we can tend to blame God for things. All right, here's a couple examples. If God isn't speaking to you, instead of blaming God or labeling him as silent or, or just being totally frustrated with him, ask yourself, how well are you listening? And ask yourself, how is my sin affecting my ability to relate with God? Right? Instead of blaming God and saying, man, God's just being silent. God's not doing his, his part of it. Look at yourself. What am I doing? How am I contributing to this? Am I really listening? We all know, you know, we all know we can listen without listening, right? <laughs> we all know we can read without reading, right? We all know we can be engaged and disengaged, right? How much attention? You're giving time to the Lord? Are you really giving Him the best? You really focused on Him? Are you really listening for Him? Or is it like five seconds of listening to the daydreaming, or oh, my mind's on something else, right? I do this all the time, too. I, I kid you not, I do this all the time. It's tough. It really is. But I don't want to find myself blaming God and just saying, woe is me. God just won't speak to me. But looking at my contribution to it, what can I do differently? Again, another example, if you don't have a good relationship with God, instead of blaming God, you know, God just pull, always away from me. God just isn't you know, doing this or that or this or that. Ask yourself, what am I doing to have a good relationship with him? What am I doing? How am I contributing to this? I feel emotionally distant from God. What can I do? What's, what's, what's my responsibility in this? It's a relationship, right? And I know God is the, the big, the biggest, you know, and it's easy to be like, well, he should do all the work, right? But you have a responsibility. This is a free relationship. This is not a... Uh, 
arranged relationship, right? You are not coerced into this relationship. You are not, uh, you know, there's nothing like that. You chose it freely. You choose it freely to stay in it, right? But in a free relationship, there are things, responsibilities in that. And how are you doing with that? So again, the antidote is to own up to your contribution. If there's an issue between you and God, own up to your responsibility. Don't put it all on God. All right? Don't be quick to blame him. What am I contributing to this? What do I need to be doing differently? And don't be like Adam and Eve. Right? We see the blame game right from the beginning. Right? We're good at this. We all do it. Right? We blame each other. Right? For our this. We blame other people. We blame authorities. Right? We you can blame anybody, right? We're good at this, right? And we just want to be aware of this. This is just going to make you miserable because it's going to keep you stuck. And it's going to keep you from making the changes that could actually make this better. So we don't want to find ourselves blaming because we all, we really looked at it, would see, yeah, I have a responsibility in this. There are some things that I'm involved and responsible for. This needs to change. So in conclusion, the three things I want you to remember is that you do have the Holy Spirit. I know this sermon is very much like, I don't mean it to be self-help, just help it to be enlightening, that we can get into these ruts, and we got to make these changes, and the mind is important, so important, it has to be engaged in your relationship with the Lord, right? Love the Lord God with all your mind, right? So you have to be engaged in your mind, you have to think about, right? What am I thinking about? What am I dwelling about? How am I thinking about things? This is important. This is very important. But you have the Holy Spirit to help you every step of the way. Golly, and we know how difficult it can be to change mental habits. Golly, it's very difficult. But you have the Holy Spirit. He is your helper. He is your counselor, right? He is power. You do have it. That is reality. That is the reality. And again, I'm not, not in all of this, I want to remind, this is not some foo-foo positive thinking stuff. This is just helping us see that reality is different than what we, how we perceive it, especially when our minds go down dark rabbit holes, right? You do. The reality is that you do have a Holy Spirit to help you, to help you in renewing your mind, to help you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, remember your emotions. When they pop up, and we know how influential they are, remember that they follow your thinking and your beliefs. So you've got to look at your thinking and you've got to look at what I really believe. They're clues. Your emotions are clues to those things. Are you going to take those clues and be able to find you know, the real issue, the problem? It's important. That can be very valuable, especially as it pertains to our relationship with God. And lastly, kind of the underlying theme of all of this is that we have to return to big picture thinking. In our culture, we... Uh, not atomizing, yeah, atomizing, not itemizing, atomizing. What we did back in the early 1900s is we decided, we started, it was essentially you pull everything apart. You strip it down to its most basic parts, and that's how you know something, is if you know all of its parts, right? And we live in that kind of society, right? You're always breaking it down, right? You look at athletes, right, and professional athletes, and they break it all down into its smallest form, and you practice these small forms, right? You practice these little moves, and you try to put them all back together, right? It's how our society works. But you have to put it back together. 
right? With the Bible. New Testament is important, folks. Believe me, don't hit me wrong. But it's one-third of the Bible. Right? And I know we live in the New Testament, so it's important. But if you miss the Old Testament, and you don't focus on the Old Testament, you don't see how it all comes together and works together, and how the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, and how it's the rising action to this great climax. And the climax is important. Right? And the falling action is important. We're living in this falling action. right? It's important, but if you don't get the exposition and the rising action, you miss a lot. It would be like jumping into the last hour of the return of the king, Lord of the Rings. Okay, there's battle, and oh, they defeated it. Cool, and now everything's great. Well, yeah, well, you, you miss out on all of the character development, all that came before it, right? All that was leading towards this great thing. You have to be able to hold the whole Bible together. You've got to see it all working together, all right? Big picture thinking, again, with people. Again, don't, don't strip them down to this little minute things. Put them all back together. And you'll see, yeah, they probably got some annoying things or some bad things, but they probably got some really great things about them. And you've got to be able to hold those things all together at the same time. And again, with God, don't just focus on one attribute of Him. Don't just focus on one idea or concept of Him. Hold it all together. He's too complex and beautiful and deep to just focus on one thing. Right? The whole Bible is expands upon him. Man, it's beautiful that way. Let's get back to big picture thinking. Back to whole Bible thinking. Whole Bible. All right? May God bless us as we renew our minds in him and as my dad said, to keep our eyes focused on the cornerstone. Amen? Amen. If you'll stand with me, we will close in prayer. I want to, again, as we're coming back to school, this week we're going to focus on the teachers and staff members of schools, um, and, and next week we'll, we'll pray for the kids and stuff. But if you're around a teacher or an administrator or staff member at a school, um, let's lay your hands on them, all right? If I miss it, I know my mom, Jody, Jerry, um, any homeschool teacher, homeschool as well, Jeannie, uh, here, uh, Heather, thank you. Nina is going to be a teacher. Uh, Michelle, uh, yes, Ray, who we got? Morgan, thank you. Lori, thank you. I knew, I, you, thank you guys, you helped me out. <laughs> Anybody else that is teaching staff members? Who am, I, who am I missing? Ray? David, thank you. Thank you. David, golly. We just want to pray for our teachers our administrators, that they are roaring back. Lay your hand on them. All right, let's pray together. Reese, my brother Reese. I forgot my brother Reese. All right. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So no one can feel bad. I, I lost my brother. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful for our teachers, our administrators, God, our staff members. We're so grateful for each and every one of them and this great, great uh, responsibility and, and great thing in our society to teach our kids. And so God, bless them, encourage them, empower them, uh, give them energy already, God, to go into this school year, Lord. Fill them with purpose. Fill them with love for their kids and, and those that they're above, God, and their, their co-workers and their schools. God, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus, that you bless them. 
that it would be a good school year, that, God, you would empower them and help them. Lord Jesus, and we pray especially for the kids that they would, would listen, that they would honor our teachers, honor those in authority above them, that they would listen to them. God, bless our teachers. In your name, Lord Jesus, bless this school year. May it just be wonderful. And God, we do pray for your help, Holy Spirit, to help us to make these changes in our minds, to make it, God, help us to not fall into bad ways of thinking, but to take every thought captive, make it obedient to you, God, and to test it against your word. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. And we all said together, amen. Amen, God.